Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. There aren't any businesses out there that aren't constantly working to analyze and to understand their relevance to the market, how they need to adapt to changes in the market, to changes in customer perception, etc. Universities often don't engage in these kinds of introspective reevaluation. And I think that's an absolutely critical part of being relevant and continuing to be relevant and to provide for students an experience that really speaks to the world as it is, not the world as it was when the institution was founded or somewhere along the way. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, and this is the President's Sketchpad series of Horsepower to Hyperloops, where we periodically hear from Kettering University President Dr. Robert K. McMahon on a variety of topics. And that was Dr. McMahon discussing how universities are often loath to reimagine their objectives and methods, and how Kettering has just completed such a project over the past 18 months. Initiated by the President's Task Force on Program Realignment and Reinvention, which President McMahon launched in early 2020, and which already in the summer of 2021 has begun implementation of its recommendations, this reimagining is not the usual administrative course shuffling. It is rather a complete repositioning of the university, on a par with the shift which occurred nearly 40 years ago in 1982 when GM cut ties with the school. This podcast is the first part of an in-depth three-part series about the specifics of this plan, in President McMahon's words, to reposition Kettering for a changing world. Today, in part one, we will be discussing one of the primary philosophical ideas behind this repositioning of the university, the participants and the process of the task force, and a newly articulated moral commitment to seeing all entering students graduate. Dr. McMahon, thanks for joining us again on Horsepower to Hyperloops. It's wonderful to be back on Horsepower to Hyperloops. I think this is a really important podcast. I think it's a really important conversation among Kettering alums and the institution, and, and it's been great so far. So thank you, Tim, for hosting and for doing this. Dr. McMahon, before we get into the details of what you've called Kettering's bright future, I want to ask you about a somewhat unique take I've heard you express about the purpose of a Kettering education. You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking over the past decade about the Kettering education. And Kettering is, as an institution in American higher education, is unique. It is a jewel in the landscape. There is no other institution like it. And when you have something like that, you spend a lot of time thinking, okay, how do you articulate that? The underlying principle of why is it unique? What, where is it? And so where I've kind of come to in explaining it is that the model, the basic premise of the university going back to its founding is different than in every other university. The individuals who created Kettering, who formed it, had a different conception about how you educate 
how you really create a fully realized engineer or a scientist. And they believed firmly that there was an equivalence that you needed to create between the theory and the practice. We all know this, the Kettering cooperative model is unique in the United States, it's uh, et cetera. But when you look at the underlying philosophy of it, you come to realize that what they were really saying, what the Kettering model is really an embodiment of, is they recognized that there was a difference between the acquisition of knowledge in a discipline and the mastery of that discipline. Charles Kettering himself used to go to a musical analogy to explain it, and I think it's actually pretty revealing. He used to say, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing poorly, but he used to say, you know, if we trained musicians like we train engineers, we would make them take, you know, 12 years of music theory before we ever let them touch a piano. And that analogy is ridiculous on its face. Nobody would say, well, you can't learn to play it. You can't learn to master an instrument like that. You can't learn. And the reason is, is because mastery of the instrument, mastery of this is uniquely and equally the acquisition of knowledge, the theory and, and et cetera, of a, of a piano and of music, and then the practice of it, the application of it in real form. And so that there's a virtuous circle that's created between those two things that you learn about it, you learn the theory of it, then you apply it and you master the, the skills, you get the motor memory, you get all the things associated with the practice of it. The same could be said for surgeons or any practice where any, any discipline and the technologies where there's a strong tacit knowledge associated with the practice of the discipline. And they built the university and this educational model around it, around that idea of mastery. Although they didn't articulate it that way. That's really something that I've come to, to, to appreciate about it. This idea of how the difference between learning about something and mastering it. And in order to master it, you really have to apply it as you're learning it. And so that that tacit knowledge, that motor memory, if you will, increases as you are learning more and more about the uh, discipline and the theory behind it as well. I think it's one of the reasons that Kettering graduates are so incredibly successful and they are so far ahead. You know, a lot of universities have cooperative programs and a lot of universities have internship programs and that's good. And that's, that's very good. But the difference in the Kettering model is, is the people who formed this institution understood that what you learn in the classroom is not subordinate to the practice. It's not like it's all theory and then you go look at it and see it applied and that's enough. They understood that real mastery, that the real acquisition of skill, the real creation of the whole engineer or the whole scientist required that you treat those two aspects of the discipline as equal in equal measure, that one wasn't subordinate to the other. I think that's in a nutshell, although that's a pretty big nutshell, we're going to long-winded <laughs> explanation, that, you know, in a nutshell, that's the difference. And I think that's what makes the university unique. Well, I, I've always liked the idea, as you explained it, of mastery, because when you get out of school with a skill or a degree, or you're prepared for a job, that's not quite the same as mastery. Mastery strikes me no. as being a higher bar. It suggests another level of competence. And I think that's what it is the university aspires to. But 
With that underlying philosophy, there's been several critical points in its history. Uh, went from a training school to a four-year yeah. college. It went from a non-degree school to a degreed school during, yes. during the war, World War II. Then, of course, the big shift that we all know about in 1982, when it became a fully private school after it was yeah. divested by General Motors. And I think one of the things that where we are at now, if I understand what you've been saying correctly in a number of venues, is that we're at another critical nexus in the university. And there's a, a lot of ways to look at that. But one of them, the points that marks that, the fulcrum on which the change is being made, has been the task force that you started a year or two ago, and that is now on the other side of the pandemic coming into fruition in terms of implementation. So tell us a little bit about the task force that was created, when it was created, who's in it, and where it's going. Yeah, the, the task force actually was active in the 2020 and reported out in 2020. But it, before we talk about specifics here, it's important to say, you know, that we're in, it goes without saying, it's cliche. We're in a time of rapid change. Technologies are changing. Businesses are adapting. Yeah, there's globalization. There's all of these things driving the needs for talent in various directions. Universities as a whole in the United States are uniquely unprepared for this. They are about tradition. They're about doing things the way we've always done them. They're about, you know, kind of the standard divisions. I mean, after all, academicians, when they go in their celebrations and their ceremonies, they wear robes and gowns and regalia that have their roots in the monastic robes of the middle ages, right? It's a, there's a long set of traditions and a resistance to kind of rapid change. There aren't any businesses out there that aren't constantly working to analyze and to understand their relevance to the market, how they need to adapt to changes in the market, to changes in customer perception, et cetera. Universities often don't engage in these kinds of introspective reevaluations. And I think that's an absolutely critical part of being relevant and continuing to be relevant and to provide for students an experience that really speaks to the world as it is, not the world as it was when the institution was founded or somewhere along the way. So engaging in a kind of a, a deep dive look at what we are doing how we are doing it, what is the market, quote unquote, meaning families and students and, and companies that we work with, what are they telling us about what we're doing and how relevant different aspects of it are, how valuable to the market different elements are. Reevaluating that on a regular cadence is a really important part of any healthy organization and I think of any healthy university. So with that kind of backdrop, we began with a task force that I created actually started in 2019 and, and worked into 2020 of a group of stakeholders across the institution. And these are faculty and staff and, and students involved in the task force. And I gave them a charter. I gave them a task, if you would. And that was to look to what we needed, how we needed to how we needed to change or reinforce what we are doing in terms of curriculum, in terms of offerings, et cetera, 
to make sure that we were relevant in the current technology climate and in the current market? And also, how do those, what they learn play to kind of our historic and traditional strengths as an institution? We started the task force not because we were in, you know, financial difficulties or anything, but really to do the kind of critical analysis of what we offered in the marketplace and, and then adapt to the realities of the demands of what the market is of today. And we have very successfully navigated through the pandemic. We haven't implemented layoffs or furloughs or reductions in benefits or any of those things for our staff. We've really clearly benefited from the kind of careful stewardship of our resources that our faculty and staff have overseen in the last decade. And so in that light, we were really looking at how do we need to move? How do we need to adapt? How do we need to evolve to provide the greatest benefit to our future students and in the industries and in the, in the areas that we serve. That's kind of the basic underpinning of the task force. And it was a very open process. The task force worked for a number of months. They didn't start with a conclusion in mind. They weren't there to reinforce a set of conclusions, but they were tasked with being very data-driven. This wasn't about I thinks or I, this was about, this is what the data are telling us. This is what, how students are enrolling. These are the industries, et cetera. These are the demands for, you know, on the, for skills on the students when they graduate. The task force had a series of open meetings and they shared their, all these data with the community and with the larger university over the course of their work. It was a very open and transparent process. And in fact, they had several culminating meetings where they just did a big data dump on everybody. So, this is what we found. And this is what we conclude from this. And one of the uh, things that strikes me as interesting is, is sort of being aware of the guts of some of the things coming out of it, how action-oriented it is. This is not a, a series of platitudes as we will get into. It's, it's some very hard and concrete stuff for some very deeply well thought out reasons. I like the name that on president's task force on program realignment and reinvention. Yeah, and it really was that. We're aware of some of the external reasons. Uh, we, we've talked about dramatic change. One of them being we've been catering in automotive for a hundred years and, and now that's morphing into mobility. And that is a, a broader, more multidisciplinary concept, which requires some different responses from the university. If it's to produce employees for that world. And internally, you had some, some things happening with enrollment and virtual education that were sort of some evolved and some were thrust upon us by COVID. But tell us a little bit about some of the things that were driving it externally and internally. When we started it, I actually laid out a set of priorities for their work. And what I said to the task force was, I said, you know, I'm not asking you to decide because I said, that's my job to ultimately to implement a set of changes or not, depending upon the findings of the task force and other information and to go to the board of trustees and make, make sure that they were supportive of these and understood what the, the work of the task force, et cetera. So I asked them to do their work broadly and openly with a set of kind of priorities that to guide them. And there were five of them, you know, first and foremost, enhancing the quality 
and the visibility of our programs and the offerings that we made, the things for which there was demonstrable and meaningful market demand, right? Universities are very good at creating new programs. They're very good at this, adding a new major in this or a new minor in that. What they're really historically very bad at is saying, okay, the enrollment in this program is not strong. The, there's not a strong market demand for it. So it's time for us to wind it down. They accumulate programs and degrees over time. They don't actually reduce them. And one of the things that when I first got here a number of years ago, when we first created the uh, biological sciences, the biology degree, one of the things that I said to the board of trustees, I said, we're going to evaluate this program in five years. And if it is not performing the way that we expect it to or are planning for it to, we will reevaluate offering it because we won't just continue it if, you know, if it hasn't panned out the way we expected it to. So having an understanding of where the demand side is, where the market demand side is, was a very important part of this. And also to understand which of those offerings had really strong kind of congruence with our cooperative model and that we could offer a high value, high quality experience for our students in those programs. So there may be a demand for a particular degree in the STEM sciences, but there wasn't a strong demand for those students on the cooperative side. So we couldn't fulfill the full promise of our model for those programs. The second is you know, to identify kind of which programs were consistently underperforming in terms of majors and minors and which were performing extremely well, kind of the pros and the, the positives and the negatives, which ones had potential for growth into the future, which ones could we again provide meaningful co-op experiences for, et cetera. With the goal of, you know, increasing capacity in the areas that were high demand, but also, you know, re eliminating programs that, that weren't and shifting resources within the organization to support those programs that were high demand, that were of high value to students. As part of doing this and as part of focusing the organization to really focus internally as well on how do we improve our, the success of our students in the programs that we do provide and that we do offer. So how do we reduce curricular bottlenecks? How do we reduce barriers to completion? How do we increase student success and student satisfaction in the process? And finally, the last is properly balancing faculty and academic staff workload to those operations. So that's part of the business of the university. How do we make sure that we are applying our resources smartly and applying them to the areas in which, which have the greatest impact, both for our students as well as for our employees. So that's a big charge. I mean, that, that's a lot of stuff to digest. It's huge. You know, one of the wonderful things about this institution is, boy, we have a lot of really, really smart faculty and we have, and they are engineers and scientists and mathematicians. They know data, they know analytics, they can tear into a problem and from a standpoint of an engineer or scientist, you know, what are the data telling us and what do we learn from it? And before we get into that data, I do want to talk about some of the specifics of which of the majors 
were strong, which were less strong, because I, th- I thought the data was uh, was very compelling as it really is laid compelling. out. But yeah. one thing that I think is a departure philosophically, you know, if you talk to a hundred alums, at least 80 of them will talk about the old, as you called it, look to the left, look to the right culture. Yeah. And you talk about a very conscious departure from that idea as a almost moral and ethical issue in supporting the student and taking that student through to success to make sure that doesn't happen. I feel very strongly about that. Tell us a little bit more about that, because that seems there's a lot of pride in kind of that, I don't know, survival of the fittest mode. And that's not where you're going. You know, some of our alums who came in and went through the university as when it was GMI and, and experienced that model to that look to the left, look to the right, they very proudly, very, very proudly say, well, I was, you know, I made it. And they have a lot to be proud of there. And it had to do, and that philosophy had a lot to do with the nature of the business of the university at that time, how students were matriculated, how they were identified, the kinds of support they received from the company moving through the university, et cetera. It made sense in its time. It made sense in its time. And the equivalent of that philosophy in the current model, in the current age, in this time, and it doesn't involve any less rigor. It doesn't involve any less rigor. In fact, the alumni of the university as GMI would very much recognize the university of today that in terms of its rigor, in terms of its difficulty, the intensity of the curriculum, et cetera. The difference in philosophy, however, in admissions is, is that we do that vetting up front. We do that kind of assessment before we admit a student. And so once we admit a student, I feel very strongly that we have an obligation, an ethical obligation to support that student. And when I say support, you know, some of the alums who have come through the university's GMI said, well, you're just, you mean coddle? I said, no. <laughs> if you talk to our students today, a lot of it would say, are you being coddled by the university? They, <laughs> I'm not. They would, they would not, they, they would, would not understand it like that. Yeah, no, they would not understand it like that. Uh, they would say, are you serious? <laughs> they would probably go, dude, let me tell you a story. No, they are not coddled, but when they matriculate, we have an obligation to act in ways that, that support their success here and to put in place the structures and the support systems, be they tutoring systems or whatever, that, that help them get through the rough spots when they present themselves. Because we do that triage, we do that evaluation up front. And so one of the things that the task force was looking at is, okay, what are the kind of the artificial barriers we put in place that inhibit student success? I mean, and a simple example of that would be, let's look at the flow of students through the curriculum, through the curricula that we offer and say, okay, if a student is trying, if a student is a a junior two and they're trying to build their schedule of the courses that they need. If two of the courses that they need to continue in their major to make satisfactory progress towards their degree are offered at the same time on the same day, then obviously they can't be in two places at once. Unless you're in a Harry Potter book, you can't be in two places at once. So you you are facing an artificial barrier, an uh, impediment 
to progress that the university has created it has nothing to do with your the rigor of the curriculum or your how hard you are going to work. It has everything to do with is the university paying attention to the path at all of its dimensions. And so that's a simple example, but it's the kind of curriculum example that does crop up. A university is a complicated organization with many moving parts. And so doing those kinds of analyses, kind of a, a lean, we teach lean system, you know, lean Six Sigma, applying that to what we do is an important part of continuous improvement. Dr. McMahon, thank you for joining us on part one of A Bright Future, a program to reposition Kettering for a changing world. Please join us next time when Dr. McMahon addresses the global industrial shift from an automotive to a broader mobility model, how Kettering's increasingly multidisciplinary academic format will seek to meet the needs of that emerging and increasingly complex mobility industry, the specifics of the academic realignment on campus, and a new master's opportunity for all Kettering students. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.